It's good to be back in this pulpit after a couple of weeks away. As many of you know, the last couple of weeks I was leading a group of diocesan pilgrims, some from this, from this congregation and some from other congregations around our diocese on pilgrimage to the Holy Land, to Israel-Palestine. So a week ago, I'm, I'm a little tired actually, because a week ago I was up all night uh, spending the night in one of my favorite places. I've never had an opportunity to do, to do this before, but I wanted to make it happen on this trip. Um, if you sign up with the right people, you get to spend the night in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Many of you know the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is maybe one of the, the holiest places in all of, in all of Christendom built according to tradition on the site of Jesus's crucifixion and, and burial. The tomb is there, the, the rock of Calvary is there, and the traditions that identify those sites, pious traditions, go back actually astonishingly early, although the church has been leveled and then reconstructed so many times over the centuries that it's, it's a little tricky to get a sense of what those sites would have looked like 2,000 years ago. It's kind of a weird space. It's a very, it's a very chaotic space. I like the words of the, um, the Dominican priest and archeologist actually who has studied Holy Sepulchre in great detail, Jerome Murphy O'Connor. He writes, one hopes for peace in Church of the Holy Sepulchre. One hopes for peace, but instead the ear is assailed by the cacophony of warring chants. One desires holiness only to encounter a jealous possessiveness as six groups of occupants, Latin Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Syrians, Coptics, and Ethiopians, watch one another suspiciously for any infringement of rights. He says the frailty of humanity is nowhere more apparent than here. It epitomizes the human condition. The empty one who comes to be filled will leave desolate, he says. The empty one who comes to be filled will leave desolate. But those who permit the church to question them may begin to understand why hundreds of thousands thought it worthwhile to risk death and slavery in order to pray here. I love those words. Those who permit the church to question them might discover something. Holy Sepulchre is the place that many people journey to the Holy Land in order to experience, and you find it all there. It's, as I say, holy cacophony. It's probably about as close as we get in the Christian tradition to what it would have felt like for a first-century Jewish pilgrim to go up to the temple to pray. That's famously how Jesus begins this parable about these two characters that he juxtaposes, right? The Pharisee and the tax collector. And it's all situated in the context of the Jerusalem temple. This is a site that Jesus knew well because he and his disciples went there often to pray. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one of them a Pharisee, one of them a tax collector. So if you've been spending any time in church, in a, in a Christian church, in a Protestant church especially, you know where this parable's going, right? Luke is really clear. He's, I mean, he's been setting up this, this story in some ways throughout the entire gospel. The Pharisees in Luke's narrative are always the opponents, right? They're Luke's stand-in for hypocritical self-righteousness, kind of, I mean, you, you know, fill in, your, fill in your adjectives, overzealous religious piety, hypocrisy, they're everything that Jesus and his movement is opposed to. Whereas the, the tax collectors, right, we know from elsewhere in Luke's gospel, this is Zacchaeus, this is Matthew, these are the guys he hangs out with, these are his friends, his disciples, the, the ne'er-do-well, I mean, usually we think of the tax collectors as like the guys who were having a beer in the bar on Saturday night, right, they're the fun guys, that's often how we talk about the tax collectors. So of course, right, I mean, one of them's a Pharisee and one is a tax 
tax collector, like, we know where this story is going, right? We know the Pharisee is a straw man. He's the setup to be lambasted. There's no surprises here, right? And Luke, Luke tacks on this tidy little moral summation at the end of the story just to make sure we got the point. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's a tax collector, right? He's, he's sufficiently humble, so he gets lifted up. He gets justified. While those who exalt themselves, those who think well of themselves, those who pray, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like the riffraff. I, you know, fast, I pray, I do everything right. Those who have a swelled head and judge others, the Pharisee, will be humbled. So watch out. There are not really any surprises for most of us in this story. It serves to confirm everything that we probably walked into church this morning thinking about pious religious people who we all know to be, you know, nasty, mean bigots deep down, right? You've seen televangelists. You watch them. We're Americans. We don't, we don't do, like, religious, <laughs> religious hypocrisy, right? Like, we know these guys. We see them on our TV screens. So we're not surprised when the Pharisee turns out to be a total hypocrite. And we tend to we side with the underdogs, right? The, the guys who were in the bar on Saturday night having a beer, it's like, yeah, I want to hang out with those guys. And when they show up in church, you know, maybe a little hungover, maybe a little abashed, but they're honest, right? They're beating their breasts, they're weeping. I mean, we, we read this as a sign of the, of the tax collector's, like, total integrity, right? Of course we do. It confirms all of our biases. Those are the guys who are likely to be the hidden saints among us. We've read our Bibles. We know how this goes. So if Jesus' parable about the perils of judging only serves to confirm our previously held biases, satisfying our suspicions, if we walk away from this parable, in other words, judging the hypocrisy of the Pharisee and honoring the integrity of the tax collector, have we not fallen into the very trap that Jesus is trying to spring us from? I mean, for a, for a parable about the perils of judging, this looks like a pretty judgy parable. <laughs> it's worth remembering that a first-century Jewish audience would likely have held the opposite set of unconscious bias, if you like. For Jesus' original hearers, Pharisees were not, you know, synonymous with hypocrisy. That took 2,000 years of, frankly, anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism to really get enshrined. For Jesus' original audience, the Pharisees were the freedom fighters, right? They were the, they were the true believers. They were the guys you looked up to. These were like the, these were like the Dalai Lama in Jesus' world, right? These guys had a great reputation. They were good guys. People liked Pharisees. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were problematic, right? They're, they're um, Jews who are working with the Roman system to bilk money out of poor people. They're mobsters, essentially. Right? They're siphoning a little bit off the top of a corrupt system. So there's a reason why they were like pariahs in polite society. Right? They're, like the, they're like the sheriff of Nottingham in Disney's Robin Hood. Right? Like They're walking in on the little poor boy's birthday party. He gets a farthing from his mother, this impoverished family. And the paw of the sheriff of Nottingham is right there to grab that farthing and say, King John wishes you happy birthday too. Right? That's the tax collectors. They're bilking people out of their hard-earned wages, and they are morally and ethically suspect. They're collusionists. So the scandal of this story is not that the Pharisee turns out to be a hypocrite. I mean, that's kind of a, a little bit of an also-ran. I think the scandal in this story is that the tax collector dares to intrude on this holy space after he's cheated a bunch of poor people out of their living, and then he cries these I mean, I think the text means us to understand kind of dishonest crocodile tears, beats his breast, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and then leaves the temple 
and doesn't change a thing about his lifestyle. He goes and continues to cheat people. And Jesus says, actually, he went down to his house justified. That's the scandal of the story. The tax collector does not repent. He does not change his ways. There's no comeuppance for this guy who is a total cheat. He cries his crocodile tears. He goes to confession, confesses his sins, and then walks right out the door and goes on to do everything he's just confessed once again. He puts on a show of remorse and asks God to look the other way while he, he keeps engaging what all of Jesus' listeners would have known to be highly immoral and unethical behavior. That seems to be the scandal of this story. This seems to be the thing that got people angry at this story, suggesting that the Ponzi schemers of the world who put on a show of religion for the sake of appearances and then continue to treat people are actually somehow being justified before God. It is a scandal, and it ought to make us very uncomfortable because there's nothing just or fair about this juxtaposition. Both of these guys are hypocrites. Right? The Pharisee's praying his, his fancy prayers, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. The tax collector, too, is just like confessing his sins and then going back and doing them all again. So nobody in this parable comes out well, right? Nobody knows how to pray. Everybody's completely self-interested in the prayers that they are praying. The tax collector's a crook, the Pharisee's judgmental, and the takeaway, as I understand it, actually serves to undermine the whole point of the story that one of them somehow is humbled and the other is exalted, as if justification before God is a zero-sum game. And there's only so much grace to go around, so the cheaters win, but the prideful don't. Both of these guys are looking for justification. They're both looking to connect with God, either through pride on the one hand or through empty promises on the other hand. And I think this is where our English translations of this text for hundreds of years have served to obfuscate the really radical point that Jesus is making by juxtaposing these two shysters. Both of them are shysters. Both of them are hypocrites. And they get juxtaposed in the temple. And ever since the King James Bible first rendered this parable in English, Luke's punchline has been rendered, truly I tell you, one man, the tax collector, went down to his home justified instead of, rather than, the other one. Tax collector wins, Pharisee loses. There's got to be a good guy and a bad guy, right? The easy religious dichotomy between good and evil must be maintained. We need, we need to know who's right and who's wrong. But so much depends on the power of that preposition. In the original story, in its original language, that preposition, instead of, right? One of them was justified instead of, rather than, the other one. It's para in Greek. That's where we get our words parallel or parabola. Actually, even, even the word for the story that Jesus is doing here, parable, is the name of this thing, right? And you hear it, para, in the parable is parabola. It's, it's setting two things next to one another, right? Teaching through analogy. This is like that. That's what a parable does. And so Jesus says the tax collector went home justified para the Pharisee. So we could translate that, as English translators always have, rather than, instead of, one wins, one loses. Or we could translate it, one of them went home justified alongside the other one. We could also translate it, and there are some translators who are moving in this direction. It might be that what Jesus means us to hear is, the tax collector went down to his home justified because of the Pharisee. What does that mean? How does this, how does this story change? If we understand Jesus' take-home message to be, truly I tell you, the tax collector goes down to his home justified because of the Pharisee. How does the Pharisee, with his 
smug little self-righteous prayer, oh God, I thank you that I am not like the riffraff. How does that prayer make the tax collector right before God? What kind of a justification is this? What does Jesus, what can he possibly mean about how justification works? If these two guys are somehow justifying one another before God in the context of their completely self-interested, dishonest, overly pious, false crocodile tear-laden prayers. So a week ago, I was sleeping, well, I, wasn't, I was trying to stay awake in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. What happens is you have to put your name on a list. You have to find the Franciscans. They keep the list in the sacristy. There's about 15 slots. When I first found the guy, I'm like, hey, is there any space this week to spend the night in Holy Supper? He's like, oh, no, 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 we're booked up. He took me in, he took pity on me, he took me in. There were two spots that night, Saturday night. He's like, oh, great. Saturday night's a really great night to be here. Because at midnight, the Greek Orthodox take over the space and they do their service of Sunday matins. It's the first celebration of the resurrection. It's a really cool thing to witness. I'm like, awesome, sure. So, you know, I get there at eight o'clock. They lock the door. There's 15 of us. We have the entirety of Holy Sepulchre to ourselves for about four hours. It was amazing. It's freezing cold because everything's stone. I brought a little bit of fruit to kind of, you know, keep me awake, try to keep me awake. Uh, and then at midnight, right, they open up the doors, and the place was flooded with Orthodox believers, right? And I don't know if you've ever been to an Orthodox service. They don't do the, like, sit in the pews and listen thing. In Orthodox worship services, like, you know, there's some chant happening up here, like eight monks are doing some beautiful stuff in the tomb. And then I think something like 500 people, I mean, I might be over-exaggerating, it felt like 500 people milling around the space, lighting candles, kissing icons, sending smoke up in the air, uh, talking with one another, chatting, doing business, taking care of babies. It was like, it was like a marketplace. Everybody was kind of like doing their thing in the space, and then every, but kind of paying attention to what was happening, because every so often, everything would stop, and everybody would like join in in this incredible lush harmony chant and then they just go back to doing whatever they were doing at mark at the third hour mark of this um i was getting both inundated with a lot of cologne and i was also exhausted and i was starting to get pretty cranky um, I'd sort of had my fill of, of Orthodox liturgy. I was like, I, <laughs> I came to Holy Sepulchre to find my moment of silence alone with Jesus, and here are all these people like milling around and kissing candles and rubbing stuff on stones and doing all of their, you know, magical worshipy kinds of things. I judged it harshly. I, I, am a, I am a good Pharisee that way. Can you believe these people with all their superstitions? So I find my little, you know, I'm looking for a, a pure moment. I find a little, uh, a little chapel down, you know, there was construction behind a screen. I thought, nobody's going to bother me here pulled my hood over, my hoodie over my head, wrapped myself in a scarf, found a little niche of cold stone, and put my head down um, to meditate deeply in sleep, because um, I was so tired. <laughs> and I was interrupted um, when two Orthodox women found their way into that chapel. I don't, know that they, I don't know if they saw me or not. They completely ignored me. Went to this icon, and they were, you know, kind of, you know, she was kissing, kissing her hand. They, uh, they started, I don't remember, they were fussing with something. And one of them was kind of holding the other one, and I realized, they were, they were, I couldn't tell if they were talking with one another or if they were praying. I think both were happening, because at one point, one of them started to weep. Um, not loudly, but, but obviously was experienced a moment of great intensity, and her friend was kind of with her there. They wept, I think they prayed together in front of this icon. I was, I was incredibly moved, actually, to see this, I mean, very raw moment of honesty before God. And then they kind of picked up their stuff, and walked out of the chapel, and as they left, I heard them kind of chatting and laughing with one another, like, on to the next thing. 
and I was completely, I was completely befuddled. I was, um, I was trying to make sense of what I had just seen. Because two of us went into that chapel to pray that day. Two of us went up to the temple to pray. I was looking for some intense religious experience. I was looking for profound silence for the voice of God to come booming through the clouds and speaking directly to me. That did not happen. I fell asleep. But I watched my fellow pilgrim, this woman who does not share my language, who does not share my belief system or my devotional practices, my life experience. I got to witness her kind of like we, kind of like we heard about in the Psalm, Psalm 84, right? How dear to me are your dwelling, is your dwelling, O Lord of hosts. My soul has a, a desire, a longing for the courts of the Lord. He's talking about the temple, right? My, my heart and my flesh rejoice in the living God. The sparrow has found her a house. The sparrow has found her a house on the swallow a nest where she may lay her young by the side of your altars, O Lord of hosts. That was what I got to see. One of the world's swallows making a nest there beside the altars of her God. Her weeping moved me profoundly, and then the easy way that she just shut it off and moved it into her life utterly mystified me. This is a, a piety and a devotion that attracts me and also unsettles me. And I've been thinking a lot about Jerome Murphy O'Connor's words about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where this all took place. The empty who come to be filled will leave desolate. But those who permit the church to question them may begin to understand why hundreds of thousands thought it worthwhile to risk death and slavery in order to pray here. Truly, I tell you, one of these went back home justified because of the other one. So what does this parable mean if one of us is justified by the weird, unfamiliar, maybe uncomfortable prayers of another one? That sanctification is not a zero-sum game. Some of us lose, some of us win. I think that's a piece of it that we all come into the temple together, hypocrites and criminals, ultra-Orthodox, functional atheists, and we stand here as equals before our God. That, that prayer is a thousand different things, but that the temple is about this, I mean, this weird kind of community, a place of prayer that is grounded in difference and the ordinariness of life and all of the bad ways in which we pray self-interestedly, hypocritically, uh, poorly, haltingly. We light our candles, we, we mumble through our Hail Marys, we venerate our favorite icons, or we just, you know, sit in the back row hoping that nobody's going to see us, nobody's going to notice us, nobody's going to talk to us. That is what the temple is built to do. There's no one way to worship God. There's no right way to pray. There are a thousand deeply unsettling ways to experience God's grace across the differences that divide us one from another. But I think... I think what this story is about is that the Pharisee and the tax collectors are like brothers in this thing. They are one another's keepers. They are tied together in a single garment of destiny. That seems to be Jesus' point. The prayers of the one justify the other, even though those prayers are weird and immoral and unsettling. In order to find themselves right before God, they depend on each other. They need each other's, play as, uh, each other's prayers. And then when they take a deep breath and and look each other in the eye, continuing all the while to mistrust, to, to judge each other. They move into their day. They work at cross-purposes. I mean, these are two guys who are, who are working to undermine the livelihood of the other. They are at each other's throats. But for one instant, for one terrifying, scandalous, 
unsettling moment, caught in a moment of of mutually self-interested, hypocritical praying. For that moment, their justification depends on each other. For those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled, which I think is another way of saying that we're all going to find ourselves on the same playing field eventually. We're all going to die someday. So this temple is like our practice for that. Maybe we come to find our our private moment with God, but what we discover, I think, is this this whole messy world of one another. This is the site of redemption. This is the site of justification. This is is how God speaks to, at least to me, nine times out of ten, right? Not disembodied voices coming from a cloud in the coughs and the shuffles and the weeping and the praying and the bad cologne of the people around you, shuffling around the space, making their devotions, coming forward to this altar, going to light a candle, going in the back, singing along, not singing along, watching their watch, how much longer is the service going to take? That is temple worship. The empty who come to be filled may leave disappointed, but those who permit the prayers of their enemy to question them may begin to understand why hundreds of thousands have thought it worthwhile to risk life and limb in order to say a prayer in God's holy temple. Thank you.